Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. Okay, we're back for part two of our discussion about the progressive shift inside the nation cities. And we were talking in our last part about um, how to engage in the conversation. You know, something for me has always been in DC, I can walk into any congressional office and if I'm talking about jobs inside their districts, they care. Do the do the members of the New York City Council, do the aldermen here in Chicago, do they care about jobs like the congressional offices do in Washington? Katie. I don't think so. Um, I think there's a complacency, probably going to what John said earlier about our low unemployment rates at the current time and a certain confidence that you know jobs are somewhat fungible right now. Um, there's also, so things are almost too good. It, in, in, I don't know if I would say they're too good, but I just think one issue that we have is we have um, we have term limits in New York, and a lot of our elected officials are haven't served for a long enough time to have experienced the cycles in the mm. economy. And I think that may be one reason why there's a bit of complacency. I mean, that was such a shock to everyone's system when the Amazon headquarters project was rejected by so many public officials mm-hmm. um, to think that those jobs would have been turned away in a rather cavalier way was was really kind of astonishing. And I think the business community is is definitely grappling now with what went wrong and and how would this how can we make sure this never happens again? And the theme of inclusive growth is what everyone is trying to get their arms around now because what clearly was not marketed adequately was that, this would have been a marvelous economic development project for so many people. Um, and there were a lot of thoughtful people behind it looking to do training and outreach and to make sure that those were positions that were filled by local New Yorkers. And obviously that message just was not conveyed. Oh, it's a great, it's a great and fairly current example of um, cutting off your nose to spite your face. Mm-hmm. But in, so inclusive growth, that strikes me as like the kind of theme we'd advise our clients to promote. They're talking to public officials, go out and and convey to them that they're growing in an inclusive way. And and you you repeat that and repeat it and repeat it and hope that people on the council, hope that people inside the mayor's office hear what you're saying. Sure. And there are time tested strategies, you know, things like participating in local job fairs. They're making sure that your recruiters are multilingual to address the nature of our communities. There are just making sure that the faces in your office reflect the faces in the communities. Just gestures like that are incredibly meaningful. Um, And so those are those are strategies that we definitely recommend employing. I think it also depends on the type of job, too, because you have, um, we talked about, you know, corporations, um, headquarters um, moving to Chicago. Um, and I think Chicago, like any other city, is is provincial and, and thinks it's the best. And there's a sort, certain amount of civic pride in any major city. And I think sometimes people forget that um, there are certain jobs, like the retail jobs, that can go anywhere. And I think that elected officials sometimes don't focus on the fact that if you're a big company, um, you you have dollars to build stores and you're looking where to build them. And you can't build all of them. 
And so you're trying to pick the spots um, that work best for you. Um, in, in Chicago, for instance, the entire border of Chicago from northwest all the way down to the south is ringed by big box retail stores. All that tax revenue is going out the door by people who, in, in, in my neighborhood, literally walking across the street, um, and all that tax revenue is going out the door because it's just easier to do business and, and also cheaper across the street. So, yeah, on the one hand, are the headquarters moving downtown? Absolutely, but I do think that um, that um, we're missing out on jobs and tax dollars. I mean, follow the money. Like, you want to solve any problem? Follow the money. You follow the money. Eventually, I just think eventually it has to come home to roost. But but we shall see. So, what are the areas? If you're that corporate CEO or that executive director, what are the areas where um, the most risk? The, the areas that present the most risk for you in terms of your business? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the fastest growing trends is in the labor and employment law area. I mean, just increasingly requiring more ba- more paid leave time, larger sort of scope of reasons that you can take paid leave, vaca- mandated paid vacation time, all these things, they have a real impact on your operating budget. And, and I think that especially as you look at large corporations where you have a high headcount, those kinds of things add up pretty quickly. A good example of the um, DC not being able to get something done and it being picked up in the cities is something called joint employer. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's this big there's been a big push in DC to um, say that um, the it's come up in the staffing context that that the ultimate uh, purchaser of the staffing services is a joint employer with the temp agency. For example, it comes up in the union context and um, right franchises very much so. And um, there's been a big push at the National Labor Relations Board in D.C. to, to get something done in the Obama administration and then reversed in the Trump administration. It's now boiled up in different ways. I know, Katie, we've seen it in New York. Yeah. So that, you know, workers rights to my eye, has been a huge focus of the progressive movement in the cities. And they're often um, crafted in, into bills where the employer has personal liability should one of the employees make a mistake or misclassify a worker or whatever. So the bills are, are very tightly drawn um, in a very punitive way. What else, Pat? So in Chicago, in addition to those labor and employment pressures, the, the huge pressure here is financial and tax policy. The city faces an $838 million budget deficit this year, and over the course of the next couple of years, we'll have to find a total of uh, over a billion dollars to pay for um, public employee pension debt that's a, a legacy cost that the city has incurred. So how and to what industries uh, those um obligations are divided up to and, and how those costs are ultimately borne by the business community um, and their customer base is, is just a huge piece of exposure that when layered on top of some of the uh, more pro-employee worker protection types of um, regulations uh, really uh, kind of squeeze businesses from both sides. I think there's also um, the danger of, and I go again back to lack of, lack of recognition. So we've run into this with um, companies that have come in and, and um where they'll say, well, the city can't do that. That's a favorite refrain of the city doesn't have the authority to do that. You know, that's a federal thing or a state thing. And you find out real quickly, the clients find out real quickly, they do have the authority to do it and they're going to do it. And so I think um, we've seen it in particular with some of the, um, the disruptor companies 
that, are, that grow very quickly. And you know, the business model can be um, turned upside down very, very, very quickly by uh, you know a city council. And I don't think that's something that um, those companies probably, <clears throat> excuse me, probably um, counted on as they were starting out and growing. Um, an example would be in New York with the rideshare. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think the rideshare companies figured five years ago that New York would do what it did for rideshare, and that's has a big effect on your on your company. Cashless um, purchases, I know, are another area where there's a lot going on restrictions. And um, how about housing and development? It's a obviously booming cities, lots of development. If you're if you're that real estate developer, how do you think about dealing with the, the cities? What kind of risks is that presenting for you? In New York, we have a, a fairly regularized development process. It's been in place. We've just, um, our Charter Revision Commission has just concluded its work and after a lot of hearings decided the process as is is pretty good and they weren't going to make a lot of changes to it or weren't going to propose a lot of changes for the referendum that will take place. Um, that said, the political climate has changed a lot. So the process remains the same. The climate has changed. And there is a terrible fear of gentrification in the city. And so even if you're building a project that's 20, 30, 40, 50% affordable units, um, you're still getting pushback because the idea that you're building any new market rate units suggests to some in the community that you're changing the neighborhood, you're gentrifying it, you're pushing out long-term residents. And no matter how many affordable units you provide, it's, it's never going to be enough. So it's, um, it's a hard question to finesse because the city is definitely growing. Market rate units in some parts of the city aren't, you know, billionaire apartments. They are, in fact, reasonably priced in, for working people. Um, it's just a challenge. And, and in many ways, you have to just face it one project at a time and really know the local community and who the stakeholders are and, and go and make your case as best you can. And that's especially true because we're seeing more and more deference to the local elected officials on terms of what projects get greenlit to move ahead and which ones stall, even when those projects are mayoral priorities. And so the mayor may have put all of his eggs into the basket to see the development move forward, but because the local council members are or some of the other local officials are capitulating to community concerns, the whole project gets stalled out for additional reviews. Um, And so I think that that's something we've seen happen both on administration-led projects and privately initiated projects, and I think is a trend that'll continue to grow as this progressive left, again, continues to have an outsized voice in the process. Is there any moderation inside these cities? You know, actually, some of the moderation you see is in the unions, at least in Chicago. I mean, they are the, the unions are are sort of activists and and, and pushing certain issues. But I, I have dealt with unions where um, they recognize that um, you know business they they fight business. It's labor versus business. But th- I've dealt with unions that recognize that business are, are the are the entities that employ their members, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I've actually had experiences where I've, I've found it easier to deal with the unions on business issues than than some of the other advocates. Because the unions, even though they want to say it, they understand behind closed doors, those, that's where we get our jobs from. We find um, there's a lot of sympathy is small business, the concept of small business, because especially Great at point. the retail yeah. level, um, there's a romanticism about small businesses. People are very fond of their local neighborhood shops, restaurants. Um, 
And so often when you illustrate, I think Rose was getting this point earlier, when you illustrate the impacts that a proposal would have on your favorite restaurant where you've been going for the last 10 years, that will get some traction in a way that just an obscure reference to business won't. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Although on the well, the elected official side, I do think there's a tendency to think that um, these small businessmen are all super rich. And I've dealt with some of the um, restaurant owners and tavern owners. And sure, there are some big players, but the average restaurant owner or tavern owner is not making a gazillion dollars a year. And I think that there's the this misperception that, the yeah, the margins right. are pretty thin on a lot of these small businesses. So, Well, that's interesting. And and so much, so much of the um, impact that we're seeing nationally as far as worker productivity and some of the things that are really driving the economy and driving displacement are, are technology related. How is that playing out in the cities? How are how are how is technology being dealt with? We see in the Democratic presidential primary and even with the, the Trump administration, there's a lot of animus toward tech. Um, which is a little bit different because that's more privacy and big data as opposed to economic displacement. But how are, how are the cities feeling about, about technology and the role that it's having as far as the workforce? Well, I, I think there are two competing pressures. And the first is, is that privacy push that you just alluded to, Howard, at the national level. That's definitely present at the state and local level as well um, with, you know, a desire to um, kind of, you know, go further and above and beyond for consumer protection and, and you know, a feeling that that, um, you know, is kind of the right thing to do and also is, is popular amongst consumers, you know, protecting people's data and privacy. And then you just have sort of what I will call a more standard government affairs problem of a reg- regulatory environment that doesn't um, reflect or accommodate a business use and trying to fit a usage into um, you know, a city government that is, you know, historically not that innovative and not that uh, open to change. So a good example in Chicago is that just uh, a week ago, the city concluded its um, uh, electronic scooter pilot program. Um, so the city of Chicago, contrary to some other cities around the country, decided to allow scooters into the city, um, but only in a designated geographic area away from downtown and only for a time-limited period. And so it was the city kind of dipping its toe in the water to see how it went before kind of diving full force into, you know, allowing a new transportation usage onto city streets. So we've started to see a little more of that. Um, and in part, that's been driven by the companies trying to, uh, the technology companies trying to, you know, open up new marketplaces and realizing um, that they need to kind of uh, meet these government bureaucracies, you know, meet them part way as opposed to the old model of just kind of coming in and operating wherever you want uh, and kind of dealing with the consequences later. Rose, anything to add on, on technology? Well, I think the other point that you're maybe getting to is employee technology as an employer. So mm-hmm. the large tech businesses, and again, getting back to the Amazon example, right, where these were good paying jobs in the technology or technology adjacent fields and accompanied with a large suite of workforce development and tra- job training programs to really help position New Yorkers most at need into those jobs. And yet there was a real pushback against this technology company coming in, and there are more and more questions being raised about technology companies' contracts with federal government, with local and state government, 
with ICE, with the police departments. And so I think that we're seeing more and more invasive questioning about these technology companies as, as corporate citizens of cities and whether or not these are the types of employers that the progressive left thinks are providing good jobs, not good jobs in terms of salaries, but good jobs as in jobs that are helping to advance their objectives for equity or help us make a better city for, for the, everyone who lives there. So, so on all of the above, I hear a lot of lemons. I've heard I've heard a little bit of of hope in in terms of um, the inclusive inclusive growth, the theme you articulated earlier, Katie, which I think um, really hit the nail on the head. But John, is there a way to turn lemons into lemonade for corporate America? Can I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier? But can you engage constructively? Can you take some of the problems that the progressive cities are trying to um, alleviate and and turn them to your advantage if you're an employer or, or a business trying to do business in one of these cities? Sure, I, I think so. I mean, there, there's a sort of a tactical approach and a strategic approach. And the tactical approach, obviously, is you're, you're dealing with ordinances as they come and as you see them coming and trying to figure out how you can, um, you know, work that issue. Um, you may not make that problem disappear, but you can, can mitigate it, get it into shape that you can live with. And then from a strategic standpoint, um, it goes back to what we said a couple times, looking at sort of the long-term trends of, you know, issues, like I said, coming in from Seattle and San Francisco. And, you know, where's our company going to be in five years and 10 years? I don't think it's going to, that, that this, that this um, progressivism lasts forever, but I do think you can position your company um, to deal um, with those. And on the lemonade front, I would also add one thing because we have talked a lot about lemons. On the lemonade front, you know, you do have in Chicago, you have, like I said, a lot of businesses moving downtown. You have a lot, a lot of um, college graduates moving here and businesses. There's a, there's a pretty rich talent pool and unemployment's low. So um, despite these issues we've discussed, there are some, uh, some bright spots. Katie. I think that's right. I think there are areas where we can find common ground um, in making some of the improvements that um, maybe at first glance you think they're impossible. And it's often people often talk about the paid sick leave that was implemented in New York several years ago. Um, businesses were very concerned about it, but in practice, the you know first ordinance, which was fairly limited in scope, has been implemented across the boards, and everyone's adjusted to it. That doesn't mean a steady waterfall of more things will necessarily, you know, have the same impact. But um, I think trying to find common ground with the people who are pushing for these goals and then just embracing them as best you can is probably the best we can we can do. Knowing that this talent pool that is coming in, the young people tend to share a lot of these values. Um, those are the workers that people want. And in some ways, it does help to make the cities as, as sort of vibrant and dynamic as they are. So finding the right balancing point is not easy at all, but um, there's a way to try to do that, I think. Good. Well, let's end on, on that bright note. <laughs> and uh, thanks to all of you for, for joining us. Mark and I will be back next week. Um, and we really enjoyed this discussion. And uh, thank you. Thank you again. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Beltway Briefing. If you liked our show, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And while you're at it, drop us a rating. 
To learn more about the Beltway Briefing or Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, please visit our website at copublicstrategies.com.